I'm just going to pick right up. Uh, last week, I introduced the, uh, the writing style or the genre would be the technical term for the book of Revelation. I'm not going to repeat any of that. If you missed that, uh, this would be one of those rare moments where I might invite you to go back and listen to a previous sermon of mine. Uh, I think it would be helpful because it's important to pay attention to what you are reading, what style of writing. That will be very important as we go forward. The other thing, this is a second part of the introduction, and we just need to lay the groundwork well here, is to pay attention is to the setting or the, the cultural reality into which John is writing. Um, last week I did mention that this is a letter, among other things, to the churches. And it occurred to me that if you're under 40, you might not have a clue what a letter is. So I... Uh, or at least you've maybe never re- written one, right? I could kind of quiz some of the young people in this room. I won't put you on the spot, but I can see you. You've likely never written a letter. So let me help you out. A letter, this is a letter. This actually is, uh, I should tell you this, quick story here. Um, Dan Sproul gave me this little, I don't even know what it is, a little kit, wash kit looking thing, and you open it up and it's full of letters and memorabilia from her dad and her uncle as they were writing letters home during World War II. Uh, to uh, her grandparents. And so this is a letter that was written by her uncle Harvey in 1940 uh, from Aldershot, England. I actually grew up close to Aldershot. That was kind of interesting. So, and you open it up, and the letter's on paper, in case you don't know what that is, and it's written in cursive, like handwriting. So it's a little tricky. You you know, it's not typed. It's a little hard to get into. But let me read you a few lines. Dear folks, I just have a few minutes left before I hit the hay. So I'll spend it with yous. I like that, yous. I'll spend it with you. Or maybe it is you. It's cursive, you know. I spent the evening writing to Mabel. Is that right, Mabel? Okay, I did read that right. And I've kept very busy this last week. And I'm, afra- and I'm afraid I've sort of neglected my writing. I was in be- bed yesterday with the flu. And then he goes on talking about some medicine he took. And, and he's writing to his folks. He's... He's helping him catch up with what he's doing. And this is my favorite part right at the end is a little P.S. <laughs> so, so far I have not received the cigarettes from the Imperial Tobacco Company. <laughs> when I receive them, I will let you folks know. Thanks very much for being so thoughtful. <laughs> Different time, <laughs> clearly. Um, it's a letter, all right? It's a wonderful letter. It's a great treasure. Thank you for lending it to me. Um, But the point is, letters are written by real people to people they know in real places talking about real things. (laughs) And that's Revelation, okay? Notice how this book starts, um, or how the reading uh, started here. When, When John gets his revelation of Jesus, and Jesus says, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Okay? Now, these are actual cities. If you look on the map here, these are actual cities in modern-day Turkey. They would have been cities at the time in first-century Roman Empire. You can still visit these cities. I've had the privilege of being in Smyrna. Smyrna is now the modern city of Izmir. You can go. It's quite a nice city, actually. And then I also took the drive down to the ruins of Ephesus, But you can visit all those places still. Most of them are ruins, but some have modern cities around them now. 
But the point is they're real cities, they're real places. John is writing a letter, and he's imagining this letter going to real churches and real cities in the Roman Empire. And if you were to look at the map, it's a circular letter. Like he's writing from Patmos. It would sail across the little spit of water there and uh, go to Ephesus, and then it would be delivered across to Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira. It's the order that the letters are written in is the order likely that this letter was delivered in. Okay, it's a circular letter. You can kind of see a postie kind of walk in that route. It takes about, I don't know, a day, a day and a half between each of those cities, something like that. Now, to continue to unpack the context, uh, scholars are a bit divided on when this letter was penned. There's two plausible dates. One is around 65 AD, and that would have been sort of toward the tail end of Emperor Nero, who is infamous. Uh, Nero was not a nice guy, and certainly not a nice guy to Christians. So that's one possibility. The other is a later date, toward the end of the first century, around 95 AD, and that would be during the time of Domitian. And you wouldn't perhaps know Domitian as well as an emperor, but he was every bit as brutal as, as Nero. And so really, it, in some ways, it's a bit of a wash. It doesn't really matter if it's written here or here. The point is, this is a letter written to Christians who are navigating life, a very complicated life, in the middle of a Roman Empire that was hostile toward them. Okay, so that was true of Nero's reign. That became even more true in Domitian's name. Now, I have my own sort of leanings that I feel like it's a later date, it's technical. We don't need to get into it. It doesn't really matter, actually. Um, He's trying to encourage. He's writing to friends just like your Uncle Harvey was writing to your grandparents uh, to encourage them to say everything's going okay, I'm feeling better, life is okay. John, too, is writing letters to people he loves and cares about as words of encouragement and challenge to these real churches living in difficult times. Now, just a quick point on the seven. Okay, I said I'd unpack this a bit. The number seven in the book of Revelation is highly symbolic, okay? Um, As are all the numbers I'm going to make the argument for. They're symbolic. Uh, Seven, uh, throughout biblical, actually the biblical writings, uh, carries this idea of completeness and perfection. So, seven days of creation. Right? When God rested in the seventh day, he looked at creation and said, it's complete, it's perfect, it is very good. And you can see how John picks up on this imagery in the book of Revelation where he uses the title Lord God Almighty seven times. He uses the phrase, the one who sits on the throne, seven times. He uses the word Jesus 14 times, seven times two. Okay, even more than complete. He uses the word lamb 28 times, 7 times 4. Right? And you see this highly sort of um, literary skill here of sort of repetitions of sevens, signaling the completeness and the perfection of who God is. And so when John writes to seven churches, you have to ask yourself, why? Why these seven? Because you'll notice he didn't write to the church in Philippi. We know that there was a church there. He didn't write to the church in Colossae because we have two New Testament letters to those churches. There's no letter to Corinth in this. Like, you're kind of like, why these seven? And I'm going to suggest to you that it's not just these seven. Seven is the number of completeness. So he's writing to seven historic, literal church communities. But the number seven means to us he's writing to the whole church. Right? The complete church. Do you see how that symbolism carries over? 
So this is now a letter written to us as well in our time, the whole church across all ages and, 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 and geographies. It's the global church that he's writing to. These churches, as I've said, exist in the Roman Empire, and you probably know bits and pieces about the Roman Empire. That's a fairly uh, well-known empire. Let me just say a few things. Uh, really, the Roman Empire was um, the, the most current of a long list of ancient empires. You would have had the Egyptian Empire and then all kinds of others. I'd have to, I should have quizzed um, Mark Conard on all this. But you've got, you know, later on you get the Persian Empire and you get the Greek Empire and at this moment in John's writing, when he's writing to these churches, they're living in the midst of the Roman Empire. Roman emperors and um, sort of this heavy-handed, heavy-fisted rule. It's uh, usually thought of as one of the most brutal of the ancient empires. And it's legitimized by this empire that exists. It's really sort of the known world. You know, so the Mediterranean basin is kind of the Roman Empire. And it's dominated by Roman myths or stories right? The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And this is this so-called golden age of order, prosperity, power, and expansion. And it was the result of Caesar. And Caesar then becomes um, sort of divinized, becomes like God. Because of Caesar, who is God, look at all this peace and prosperity you can enjoy, right? That's the myth. That's the story the empire is telling. And its citizens were actually ordered, among other things, they could worship whatever god they wanted, but they had to worship the emperor. And there were certain customs they had to participate in at temples to give homage or pay tribute to the emperor. Uh, you can sort of conjure up images of Star Wars here, right? And the emperor, and you're sort of on the right track. All right. Not everybody, so this is the myth though, this is the story, the peace of Rome, it's prosperity and goodness for all. Uh, those stories, if you start digging into them, is not entirely true. The Roman Empire wasn't good for everyone. There were definitely winners and losers in this. Uh, so yeah, it, there was some economic prosperity, but there were also people being left behind and there were people being oppressed. So even though it was secured by economic uh, prosperity. It was also secured by military control. You step out of line, you protest, you don't like what's going on, well, we've got a cross we can hang you on. And there was lots of crucifixions in the Roman Empire, uh, Jesus being the, uh, the most significant of them. Uh, but there was lots of people that sort of stepped out of line and got punished. Okay, so yes, there is a, a story or a myth, a narrative of peace and prosperity, but boy, you step out of line... It's not going to go well for you. And it's also sustained by uh, images. Okay? This, is a, this actually is very interesting. Uh, we should think about our time that's also sustained by images. Uh, so here I want you to look at this coin. I think it, there it is. Uh, this is a silver denarius, a silver coin that was minted by Domitian, the emperor, to commemorate the death of his infant son. Okay, so you see the heads has got this, not Domitian, good-looking fella, hey? Big nose and a ponytail. Um, and then you've got his son there, and you see he's holding some stars in his hand. And then there's an inscription around it. It says, uh, the inscription translates, the divine Caesar, son of the emperor Domitian. And so every time you use this coin, you're reminded by an image that Caesar's in control. 
right? That Caesar's divine, and he is the one that holds the seven stars. The seven stars at that time would have signified the seven planets. I know there's more than seven planets, okay? I'm aware of that. But at the time, they only knew of seven planets. And so it's, a, it's an image that Caesar, in this case his son, is holding the planets, right? Think about that image for a moment. Caesar is divine, and he holds the universe in his hands. Now listen to what John has just written, or what Jesus actually says, the image of Jesus that he gets. He looks, when he looks at Jesus, and in Jesus' right hand, he held the seven stars. And it is hard to imagine a more... Um, radical, revolutionary thing to say than that <laughs> to the churches in the Roman Empire. It is not Domitian, and it is certainly not Domitian's son who holds the seven stars. It is Jesus who holds the seven stars. Right? It, this is, this is um, sort of, oh, what's the word I want? It's, it's subversive poetry. John is, these guys would have got it. They would have handled these coins all the time. They would have been very familiar with the image, and John is given a counter image. Okay, and it's really important you catch some of this. I'm not smart enough, don't worry. This, I didn't sort of conjure this up out of my own head. You gotta, this is where you know, other people can sort of help you. This is where it becomes vital that we read the Bible in community. Uh, and, and, and draw from other people and, and read beyond and all of that, Okay. Now, what's really going on here is um, in, the wor- in, the, in the world of, of Revelation, uh, the world of apocalypse. Remember, I talked about this being an apocalyptic uh, literature. It's highly symbolic. What John is going to do, or what John gets given, is a, um, a vision that things aren't quite as they appear. So he's living in... And he's writing to churches that are existing and struggling to live in the Roman Empire that tells all these stories and has all these images. And if you step out of line, has this strong military power that will keep you in line. And in the world of Revelation, the veil gets pulled back. And I'd like to move, just skip ahead here and pick up one of the images or visions that John has given of the beasts in chapter 13. And just listen to this description. Okay, it's pretty fantastical here. The dragon, so there's a, there's a character that appears on, this, on, the, uh, on the scene called the dragon, and we'll unpack this a lot more in the coming weeks. The dragon is very important, but it's clear biblical imagery of the serpent, the snake, right? Dragon, snake, you kind of see the, the, the commonalities. This is Satan. Uh, in the story, and we, we, we do need to sort of unpack that a little bit coming up. But the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and each had a blasphemous name. And the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but it had feet like those of a bear and mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. And one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but that fatal wound had been healed, and the whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, 
And they also worshipped the beast, and they asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? And the beast was given a mouth to utter proud and blasphemous words, to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. And it was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the inhabitants of the earth worshipped the beast. Okay, now remember, there's a highly symbolic language going on here. But what commentators will point to, and I think where I am persuaded, is the beast is a symbolic representation of the Roman Empire. Right? Listen to the description, right? Remember I told you the Roman Empire, I mean it was a bit of a gloss, but I told you the Roman Empire had this powerful military arm. The reason they built roads all over the Roman Empire, good roads, is they could get anywhere they needed to quickly to squash uh, revolutions, right? They could move their army around their empire fast. It's one of the things that still endures about the Roman Empire, actually, the roads. Um, So they can move their military around. But listen to this beast, right? It's like a leopard. It has paws of a bear and a mouth like a lion. I wouldn't want to meet any of those animals in the wild. I always go hiking with Jackson. He's like, can we see a cougar? And I'm like, no, I do not want to see a cougar. I don't want to see a, um, I don't want to see a bear. I just don't. Like, you don't want to face these animals in the wild. All right? This is clearly a description of something with power, and it's been given permission to wage war and destroy the people of God. So this image, this myth of the peace of Rome When the veil gets pulled back, John sees the Roman Empire as a beast, as a violent beast that destroys people and spits them out like trash. That's what's being uncovered here. And notice how this empire, or this beast, to keep with the language of chapter 13, is a caricature of the lamb. One of the heads of the beast was seen to have a fatal wound. It was wounded but it's been healed. It's almost been sort of, it's a, it's a, it's a counterfeit resurrection. All right? It's, it, it's sort of parody of the lamb. And pick up again, um, I mean, resistance to this seems almost futile. People just get convinced and, and worship this beast. They'll say, who is this beast? Who is like this beast? Who can possibly wage war against it? Which, as a good Old Testament reader, you will know, I had to be told, you will know, is a parody of the Song of Miriam in Exodus 13 when the Israelites were drawn out of their, that empire, the, the Egyptian empire. And they come through the Red Sea and Mary sings a song of praise and says these words, Who among gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory and working wonders? This is what we just sang. What Mike and the team let us in. God of wonders. Right? It's God of wonders. It's, the, it's God who holds the seven stars. Not Nero, not Domitian, not Domitian's son, not the Roman Empire. Right? But you see how they're a parody. They sort of seek to try and copy, but it's an it's a imperfect copy. But it deceives people nonetheless. There is, if you follow on in chapter 13 of, of 
Revelation, there's now a beast out of the sea, and there's a second beast that emerges out of the earth. Uh, I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns. Listen again to the parody. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like the dragon. Right? This is a beast again that sort of has kind of, it, it sort of gets you to think, oh, it's kind of like God, kind of like the lamb, and yet it is empowered by and speaks like the dragon. And if you continue to read that little part of that beast, it deceives everybody into worshiping the first beast. And in the Roman Empire, everybody was forced or deceived or fell in step with worshiping the empire. Right? Do you see how John is given the ability to sort of pull the veil back in this revelation and see what is really going on? This is a prophetic critique or an expose, if you will, of the true nature of empire. Empires that exalt their own power, their own security, and demand total allegiance. The Roman Empire says it's the peace of Rome. Look at this prosperity and this goodness that we'll provide. And John invites his readers, the church, to pull the veil back and say, these empires that reject God and build up their own power, their own security, their own dominance, their own allegiance, they're beasts. They're violent beasts. That is what they are. And notice that the beasts are empowered by the dragon. We'll get into this uh, a little further in the coming weeks when we talk about the enemies of the Lamb. But do notice that the, it is the dragon that empowers the beasts. So it raises questions for us on how we read the book of Revelation in our time. Because we don't live in empires, really, I mean, you could argue, you know, Western Empire or American Empire or something. And those are interesting conversations. We don't typically use the, that language. Um, you know, we don't think of it quite that way. Uh, but we could ask, well, I think the question is, uh, how might we hear Revelation? What is it exposing in our culture? And ideologies, ways of thinking, can function a bit like empires. They're completely dominant. Um, and they shrink our imagination to only think down certain tracks. So let me give you an example. I know it sounds all kind of heady, but hopefully, <laughs> we'll see. Hopefully I won't get in too much. Uh, we'll see. All right, so I want you to just think for a moment of someone, like if I ask you to think about someone beautiful, just conjure up in your mind, and here, don't, hopefully not get in too much trouble here, but conjure in your mind a beautiful person. Right? Just think, who in your estimation is a beautiful person? It could be a celebrity. It could be whoever. Who do you think is beautiful? Okay. Now, ask yourself for a moment, what influenced that definition of beauty? Okay, so I don't know who you... I'm not going to ask you to confess who you thought about, but my guess is you probably thought of somebody with a sculpted body of some kind, and your image has been somewhat, if not largely or completely, formed by either Vogue or GQ magazine. And that line of thinking, that we think of beauty and beautiful people a certain way because our, the images of our world presents beauty of, uh, in people a certain way. 
So, you know, guys with six-packs and all of this stuff and and women who are, uh, you know, impossibly slender and all of this stuff, okay? That's the image. I am going to guess that not one of you thought about Mother Teresa when I asked you to think about a beautiful person. Okay, and do you see how an ideology can shape you to think a certain way? And let me just push that a little further. That ideology is a beast. If you're raising daughters, you know this. It is not kind to people's self-esteem, self-worth, the way they view themselves, the way that young men view women. You can see the devastation that this causes. So we get these glossy magazines and it all looks good, right? The Peace of Rome. But if you pull back the veil, what Revelation is inviting us to see is certain ideologies or certain ways of thinking that the empire propagates, the empire uh, promotes, are actually beasts that will destroy you. And so this book invites us into that imaginative world and to say, how is it that we live in our empire? What is going on? What is going on in our time? And not only what is going on on the surface, that matters, but Revelation says, look beyond. Like there's more going on than meets the eye. And it will take some thinking and and praying and discerning on our parts to sort of begin to unpack it a little bit. All right, remember this is still an introduction. There's lots to go here, but um, John is writing, let me get back to the letter uh, motif. So John is writing uh, to uh, these churches, and he gets this instruction to write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. And then there's this beautiful phrase, I turned around to see the voice. (laughs) Do you catch that? I turned around to see the voice. A beautiful phrase. We talked a bit last week about pay attention to what John hears, but also pay attention to what he sees. And what he sees, um, he, he, he says, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Now, John's hearers would have been attuned to this, I am sure. Um, I am less attuned to this. So I had to do a little bit of uh, further reading. But the Son of Man is a very rich theological phrase that I miss. I just think, oh, Son of Man, he looks like a guy or something, a human. Um, But it's actually, there's a lot packed into that. And you need to go back to um, the vision of Daniel in chapter 7, which many of us, I think, don't read. We like the first parts of Daniel because it's Daniel in the lion's den and all that which is wonderful, and then we get to the second half of Daniel, and it gets a little bit weird, and we quit reading. But in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of four beasts, and it's actually kind of interesting how the beasts resemble the beasts in Revelation, right? The first beast, um, he says, I saw four great beasts, each um, each different from the other. They came up from the sea, so you can see the correlations. One was like a lion. The second beast looked like a bear. The third, you know, do you see the correlations here that John is making? All right, remember we talked about how many allusions to the Old Testament there are? So he's got this vision of these beasts that looks like a leopard with paws of a bear, mouth of a lion. He's clearly picking this up from Daniel chapter 7. 
But here's the piece I wanted to read. In my vision that night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, and he approached the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is an, uh, a Hebrew expression for God. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he, right, the Son of Man, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples and every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom will be one that will not be destroyed. And again, writing to Christians in an empire that are completely inundated with images that say, Caesar is Lord. John gets given a vision that he passes on to the church that says, no, Jesus is, the, is one like the Son of Man. And he has authority. And he is to be worshipped. He is the one to whom you owe allegiance, not Caesar not the empire, not these ideologies that deform you, that cause you to be something not human. Okay, so the Son of Man refers to a central figure in history, one to whom all the kingdoms of the world are given, and one to whom all the peoples of every age, including ours, owe allegiance. That's who he sees. And then notice, this is such good news, friends, Notice where the Son of Man, Jesus, is standing. I turned around and I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. Among the lampstands. It's one of those details you just kind of read and go, oh, okay, he's standing around some lamps, Ikea lamps or whatever. I don't know. But lamps. But listen, if you go down to the bottom of chapter 7, uh, sorry, chapter 1, the last verse, Jesus says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So when it says that Jesus stands among the lampstands, catch what he's saying, where he's standing. He is standing with the church. So wherever the church is, Jesus is standing with them in the midst of their struggle and their confusion and their fear and their uncertainty. Jesus stands with the church. And friends, this is a complicated time. I don't need to go into that. You know that. You, you're, some of your, literally, your families are divided around some of the stuff that's going on. It's complicated to navigate pandemic stuff, let alone all the other stuff that's shifting in our time. It is bewildering. It is confusing beyond belief at times. Uh, it feels divisive. It feels discouraging. You're not sure as a Christian where you should be and how you should be. But friends, hear this. Hear this. Jesus stands with you. Jesus stands among the lampstands. He stands with his church. This is such, such good news. And the very first thing, Jesus will have lots to say in Revelation, but the very first thing he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Friends, 
That's where I'm going to leave you on this introduction. Okay, this is written to churches who are struggling to make sense of life in the Roman Empire. And it's, some of their friends are, are being arrested and thrown in jail. Others of their friends are compromising with the Roman Empire. They're giving in. They're assimilating. All of this will be challenged in the letters written to those seven specific churches. And John will encourage them, and, or Jesus through John will encourage them or challenge them to remain faithful. But at the very beginning, right at the beginning of it all, there is a reminder that Jesus stands with us. There are beasts in our time. Okay, there are still dragons. We'll talk about this. But Jesus stands with us and says, do not be afraid. I invite Andrea and the worship team up. Uh, Andrea's going to lead us in a time of communion. But let me pray uh, while they're Um, maybe moving into place. God, I thank you for these words written to the seven churches, really written to the whole church, written to us, Varsity Bible Church. A reminder that, Jesus, you stand among the lampstands. You stand with us at this time. Amidst all of the uncertainties of our time, You are with us. And you invite us to not be afraid. I'm reminded of Psalm 23. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid because you are with me. God, may we know today, may we experience today, that you are with us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.